This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hales Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Scott Abraham, who founded the Gilderland Farmers Market in 2018. He has coached lacrosse around the world and helped with organizing large-scale environmental efforts. He launched the Gilderland Market, where he lived, after he read about farmers committing suicide. He wanted to help. Now, he's starting a new venture, Meet Your Neighbor's Open Market, which he says is for people that might just want to try out their hobby to see if vending might be a way to supplement their income. And, he says... It's a chance for all of Gilderland to come together. I got a flyer uh, with a great drawing, a sketch of a very busy marketplace that says, meet your neighbors. Tell us what that's about. Yeah, so this is a a new kind of market I'm trying. Um, It's for people that really don't have enough product that can get into a farmer's market for the whole season. It's also for people that might just want to try out their hobby and see if they might vending might be a way to go to uh, supplement their income. Um, And it's just a chance for all of Gilderland to come together. And, you know, there's a lot of businesses in Gilderland. So a lot of farmers markets won't let certain businesses in um, unless they're a mom and pop. But I want to turn that around and invite everybody in. So if you're a chiropractor, if you're, you know, an insurance agent, a dentist, whatever you are, you know, so be it. Um, I want you to come down and, you know, post COVID, everything has changed. You know, everyone's all about me, 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 me. Even um, marketing and advertising has changed. So I just want to give a chance for small businesses, all businesses to get their name out there. Um, and a chance for the Gilderland community to come together and maybe meet your neighbors because Gilderland's so big, you know? So there's like different parts of Gilderland. I wanna get those, all three parts together and, and meet each other. Well, I wanna back up and unpack some of that before we get the details, because I think that's interesting that even marketing has changed since COVID, you said, how, how so? Just tell us a little about that. Okay, so um, I do a, a child entrepreneurship program, and four years ago, this little girl started selling lemonade. Fast forward, she saved her money, she bought her own trailer, she pays for kids that can't afford um, like weekend sports trips, and uh, she made the front page of the of the Times Union big picture, blasted all over the place. And I'm like, wow, we're going to be really busy this weekend, and we weren't, you know, so. I think it's, I mean, instead of paying, you know, $1,500, you know, for maybe a radio ad or something, you come to a market and pay $30 and now you got face-to-face marketing, you know, which is much better than maybe someone is going to listen to the radio, you know, um, it's just, I don't know, it's it's just even the, the way People show up to the events, you know, pre-corona, I was like, okay, I know people aren't going to show up this day because this is going on and that's going on, but there's no rhyme or reason when people show up anymore. And for small businesses, 
you know, advertising and word of mouth is very important to keep their brick and mortars going, you know, so giving them another avenue to try to um, gain customers is, is really important to me. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe not so much COVID, but the idea that the media is spread out in so many different ways and there's so many different ways to reach people that having a front page story doesn't necessarily do it anymore. And the face to face has come to be an important and valued thing, especially after we were all in isolation. Okay. well, so. Tell me about the when and where of this. Is it running continuously with the farmer's market you already have? How is that working? So this is um, this is like a test run for the first month of June uh, or for yeah, the month of June. And it's every Sunday from 10 to 2 p.m. And then the regular farmer's market is going to start up the first Sunday in July. I see. So June is to test this out. And if it goes well, what happens in July? Um, if people want to stick around, uh, they're more than welcome to. Um, but it would be more of like the smaller businesses um, that I want to um, to keep because there's only so many spaces we can have at Gildalyn. So I would rather give it, you know, first right of refusal to the mom and pops or small businesses first. And tell us where you are. You're at the library now, right? The Gilliland yeah, Public Library. They built like this beautiful upper lot and um, it's just, it's away from other parking and there's handicap parking. I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't ask for a better um, spot or a better um, business to pair up with as in the Gilderland Public Library. Library, They're amazing. Yeah, because they are. Their slogan is, what is it? Community gathering place. So yeah, you're just you gathering go. in a different way. And I know you started out down uh, near Star Plaza, right? 20 and 155 there. And oh, my God, yeah. This, yep. is, this is just kind of more in the center of town. And you mentioned you want to bring the different parts of the town together. Tell us about that. I think you said there are three parts to the town. So, that's what I kind of consider three parts. So, I mean, you have Albany, the Albany address, you know, that goes all the way down to, um, what is it, uh, the mall, you know, Crossgates Mall. Then you have, if you go out Western, you know, past the library, you have the more Rotterdam-ish area. And then you have more of the hill towns as you go up towards Altamont. That's, that's what I consider the three parts of Gilderland. I think that's really interesting because I just know from posting our paper that McCownville area you mentioned is the Albany zip code. I hadn't thought of it that way. And then out past Carmen Road and over that way is the Schenectady zip code. And then Altamont takes up a whole lot of what goes up the hill um, mm -hmm. into the hill towns. Huh. And so the idea is, does that happen now at your current farmer's market? You get people um, from all different parts of... Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, we had to move around a couple times before yeah. we found our, our home. And uh People like when we first had it on 155 and Western, they people loved it because there was nothing really right there except for like the supermarket and everything. So that that helped out, you know, all the way down. People can walk there, you know, from, you know, on Western Avenue. There's a bunch of different condo areas and everything. Um, so we would get a lot of um, people from that area. 
But now that we moved a little bit further down, some people are like, that's too far of a walk for us. Maybe we don't want to drive. But then, you know, we get all the people from, you know, Altamont. And then, you know, behind the library, there's, you know, beautiful developments. So I am seeing um, last year compared to like, let's say 2019 before the corona, um, I'm seeing many new faces, but I'm also seeing a ton of um, regulars that started with me, you know, back in 2018 that still support the market, which is lovely to see. So what started you on this in the first place? 2018, that's when you opened. What, why, yeah, yeah. why do a farmer's market? Okay, so there was, um, I read a story about farmers committing suicide because it's, they have like a fifth generation farm. They can't afford the farm anymore or the land or it's just too tough on them. They can't find help. So they were committing suicide as failures. Um, so that was my, like my first initiative to start this. The other thing is I used to buy and sell antiques and then I started buying things I wanted and not selling antiques. So I had to, you know, come up with some way to sell some antiques. Um, and so that's how it kind of basically formed. But prior to that, I was out in California and my ex-girlfriend and I, um, worked on some huge events, um, that we can talk to, uh, talk about later on. Okay. So it was really starting, I was thinking, because I read up a little about some of your environmental um, issues mm-hmm. that you've been involved in. I was thinking you were going to say that, you know, you wanted people to be eating healthy food, but th- it really started with this idea of helping farmers, that you mm-hmm. read about the suicide and you wanted to have farmers prosper and have a way to get their wares directly into the hands of suburbanites. Yes, absolutely. And then, I mean, when I was out in uh, California, I mean, in Santa Monica, they had this wonderful um, farmer's market that it would be a farmer's market on one street. On the corner street, it would be antiques. On the other side, it would be desserts, you know. So, I mean, they've been doing that for over 30 years. Um, so when I came back, you know, and I, you know, I heard about the farmers and, um, it really wasn't, I'm just teasing about my buying and selling antiques, but I'm not really because I never really <laughs> sold any of them. Um, but no, it, it's as it, you know, after that year, um, I had a friend of mine come down with her daughter and she actually bought a whole bunch of sunflowers from, uh, a local florist and started selling them and to see her smile and talking to those people. I'm like, all right, there's something else here that needs to be done. And then I started, you know, then you look at the economy and it's just, I mean, everything is going up so high. I mean, $80 buys you one pack of groceries now, you know? So bringing a farmer's market into the mix, I didn't foresee this happening, but it is a very important and vital um, need for the community, you know, to support these farmers, get fresh fruit uh, or, or produce, and, you know, know where your meat comes from, you know, and just helping out, you know, your community. I, you know, someone said it takes, you know, a village to raise. Um, to, I forget that quote. So it takes maybe a village raise. to raise. A, it was a child. It was popularized by Hillary Clinton. It came from a African saying. But go oh, ahead. Okay. But I definitely think nowadays it's it takes it, everyone wants to be me, 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 me. But we have to learn to learn to help each other and learn to get the help 
because we're just running in an inevitable circle that is we're not going anywhere. And you turn on the news, there's so many sad stories. And, you know, coronavirus definitely changed things. But um, having a farmer's market, a place for the community to meet, get produce, help the farmers, help small businesses, you know, even help little children get off the couch and, you know, out and selling some cookies or paintings, you know, I think is really important these days. Yeah, you mentioned you had a child entrepreneurship program. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that actually started uh, in Gilderlin um, during the first year when my friend's daughter came and um, wanted to sell flowers. And I saw how well that did. So then um, I also own the Washington Park Farmers Market. And I wanted to bring that there. And I really started it there in 2019. Um, and it was just, I mean, we had kids with Asperger's. I couldn't look people in the eyes selling their art. You know, that was his first day. The next day he came back, his hair was cut. He was talking to people. His, the mom's crying, being like, oh, my God, my son never talks to people. And it was just that one art sale that turned that kid around. You know, so I followed that every year. And uh, I brought it, I'm bringing it to the Gilderland, you know, now it's going to be a continuous part of the Gibbon Farmers Market, but this year is like the first year we really um, are is open are opening it up to kids. That's great. Well, we should talk too about your work with 350.org. Um, mm. Just first of all, tell us what that organization is. Okay, so 350.org is the amount. Uh, it's like par- parts per million of CO2 that humans can actually be comfortable breathing in and not having like respiratory problems, uh, stuff like that. So that's the particles in the air of carbon uh, monoxide or dioxide. Don't quote me on that. It's one of those. Um, But the crazy thing is that having a higher uh, level is amazing for the trees and all the greenery around you. But once that hits and it goes over 350, that's when it becomes a more dangerous to humans um, because there's more, you know, carbon dioxide than there is oxygen in the air. And it was, it was, the levels were raising um, at an alarming rate. And that was even back, you know, 15 years ago when I did this, you know, um, I think we might be at 400 right now. Don't quote me. I haven't looked in a little bit, but we actually, um, it was a global event. So um, my, my ex-girlfriend was uh, part of this group, um, Earth Day LA, and this guy, John Quigley, who actually was one of the guys that chained himself up with Goldie Hawn um, up in the, the Redwoods or whatever. So he started um, a thing called uh, Save Our Seas, SOS. And then that became into, hey, let's work with 350.org and maybe have people around the world um, form the letters 350 by having people lay down or stand up and then take an overhead shot. And it was, it actually went global. And then everyone raised, um, everything was uploaded to this big, huge uh, screen in Times Square. And it was actually the, the biggest uh, cumulative act of, um, of, uh, of, of activists um, getting together, doing one event globally, which was amazing. Cause I mean, I had people in, um, in Egypt, you know, and I had like three people that I had to be based with. So I would be on the phone with them. I would see where the camera was, make sure they set it up. And I mean, it was just an amazing call for action. 
Wow. So how do you go about organizing something like that? I mean, activists around the world all participating in one single event. At the one time, I would love to take credit for that, but it wasn't me. Um, it was a group of people that came together and each one had their own part in doing it. And 350.org was out there already, but with John Quigley and some other people, we all came uh, together and we, it was amazing. Yeah. Well, you have such a diverse set of interests. You also mentioned to me your coaching of lacrosse. Just tell us, just let's back up. Let's start with your childhood. <laughs> because where did all these interests come from? You grew up in Terrytown, is that right? In Westchester County? Tell yep, us Terry. about tell us about your family. Who were your parents? What what was it uh, like where you grew up? Yeah. So I grew up in a little um, condo community um, right in Tarrytown. My father left before I was born, so never had like a father figure in my life. So it was my mom bringing me up. And then um, later on, she met another guy I had, and I have a, a brother too. So, but during that time, uh, my mom always wanted me to work. And hopefully she's not listening to this because she'll probably get out the soap. But uh, <laughs> I had a paper route. <laughs> and my mom had this wonderful draw of junk food, what we call junk food, Doritos, potato chips. Back then, fruit roll-ups were all the thing. So I started giving kids fruit roll-ups from the community to deliver my papers. And my mom is like, you're eating a lot of fruit roll-ups. And I'm like, and then found out that I was giving kids the fruit roll-ups to deliver my papers. And my mom's like, all right, I got a smart one, but you're buying the fruit roll-ups from now on. So it went from that. And then, uh, you know, I played lacrosse in high school, uh, went out to Dowling College and played lacrosse out there. Um, and then when my mom moved up here with my brother, they moved into uh, North Colony. And that school, Shaker is huge. I graduated with 92 kids. Even though we're only 45 minutes from the city, Tarrytown's a very small village if you look at the, like the square mileage and everything. So we all had smaller high schools there, so you knew everybody. But with him coming up here, um, it was like, I think they had like 400 kids in a class. That's like a, a small private college, you know? So I moved up here with them, and I actually started uh, coaching guys lacrosse. It's Shaker with um, a man named Coach Fink. And that's when Shaker was like ranked nationally, um, I think top 20 nationally um, in lacrosse. And then from there, so I did that for two years. And then, um, and then uh, I played in a band. So I traveled a little bit. And then um, lacrosse has always been a hobby. Um, coaching lacrosse has always been a hobby. Playing it in a team sports, playing any team sports or or doing a play with multiple people is really important for children and teach them sociability skills and, you know, how to trust somebody else when, you know, you might not be able to do something. So I think uh, group participation with kids are very important. Um, so I still uh, have my hands in lacrosse, but then I went to Sienna girls, um, help coach at Sienna with the girls team. Then I went back to Shaker to help the Shaker girls where there is Abigail Rafis, um, and she is actually the head coach now of Siena. And, I mean, those girls, they were amazing. There was a girl named Kat Thomas. Um, she was on the U19 um, national hockey team uh, and, uh, until she blew out her knee. But, I mean, Shaker had really good athletes, and um, so I was helping out there. Then I went to 
um, Albany Academy, and uh, where I coach JV and Mikey Lavelle, um, who won the Torin Trophy. So my resume is, I'm not even looking at my res- resume at this point or whatever, but when I moved out to California um, to coach lacrosse, they like flew me out there and uh, put me up and everything. Um, our team that I went to go coach was never over 500. When I got there, we only lost one game and we beat this team called the Pacific Palisades. They're like multi-million dollar houses. They send their kids all over the place. But for um, Mission Viejo, where I coached, it was like a blue collar, you know, Orange County. We demolished them. And that head coach was the head coach for um, the Argentinian national team. And he was like, Scott, there's so many opportunities to go overseas and coach. I'm like, great, you know, I'll look into it, you know. Took, I got a couple of interests, like people sending me letters, but then somehow my name got out there and I went over to Israel where we brought 50 American kids to introduce lacrosse. And then um, from there, I went to Croatia um, where I coached at the university of the doctor's school. Um, and then I brought lacrosse into an elementary school in Greece and Athens. And I helped out with uh, the Slovenia national team. I would bring equipment over and um, I ran a couple uh, uh, day scrimmages uh, in Portugal. So lacrosse is just getting a little bit bigger out there, but it was also a chance for me to see Europe, which I've never been to. So I'm just like blown away. First of all, why lacrosse? What is it? It's a basically American sport, right? It came from Native Americans. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, and what, what is your, why is that something that became so central to your life? Why lacrosse instead of, say, soccer or baseball? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I started playing baseball until I saw people throwing around a lacrosse ball and lacrosse stick. And I'm like, then I watched a game and I always played football, too, you know. So and I'm like, wow, this is interesting. This is like three or four sports combined into one game, one, you know, one sport, you know, lacrosse, you know, it takes on hockey, soccer, basketball, Um you know, it's all attributes that you can see in there too. And then uh, instead of like playing, you know, like left field or something, and the ball comes to you maybe two times a game, uh, you get kind of bored and picking daisies in the outfield. Lacrosse is never a boring moment. So it's, it's a, maybe I had ADHD and that helped me with my vision and it was okay. Cause there's so many things going on. So yeah, I did leave baseball and to play lacrosse, but I also played football in baseball. But then this passion that just carried you around the world. What was it like to be in these different cultures? Do you speak different languages or did you just work with English or did you work coaching just through like physical demonstration? How, how does that work? Yeah. So in, um, in Israel, um, this was uh, they just they started a program there before. So I was just helping out um, and. So everyone basically speaks English in, in Israel. Um, but when I went to when I went to Croatia, it was like anyone, you know, maybe 40 and younger, 40 to 30 can speak English pretty good. 30 and younger definitely speak very well. But the 50 year olds and, and older really don't speak that well of English. So it's a lot of hand gestures and, you know, learnings of some basic words. Um, but that was the whole thrill about being over there too. You know, it's like, 
you don't have a, I mean, I have a support system because I work for the college, but not like a family support. I didn't know anyone over there uh, in Split, but I did have a friend in college. Um, him and his sister are Croatian, and their father came over before the war, mm-hmm. and they were telling me, Croatia is so beautiful, beautiful. I'm like, yeah, I just had a civil war. How safe is it? And I'll tell you something, it's the safest country in the world, because if your grandma finds out that you did something and everybody knows somebody who knows somebody, you're excommunicated from the family. So there's hardly any crime. There's no, you know, no one shooting people and everything. It's just a misconception that, you know, they went through a civil war. It's not safe there. No, it was amazing. And learning their language and getting up to the hill towns and hanging out with the locals. It was just, I mean, I just caught the itch. So I went back next year. Then I'm like, I'm going to go to Greece and start a program. But wait, so, wait, before we go to Greece, Croatia, you said you were coaching. They were students in a medical school. They were becoming doctors. Is that who yeah. you were? Yep. And so they were older. They weren't like kids. They were like young adults. And they were, they were um, you know, I think 19, you know, up to 24. Yeah. Um, and the... University of Split Medical School, there's a lot of German people. There's a lot of people from around the world that go there mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's an easier school to get into compared to like a German national medical school, mm-hmm. which is like, I think, the hardest school to get into. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of international uh, kids would come um you know, to go to school there at the university is split and they have like the, uh, the medical college and they have different like versions, like sort of like we do here. Um, but it was, uh, that one kid that came over, went to Michigan, uh, for one summer, found a game of lacrosse, brought it back. And now they have, you know, a national team and they had uh, four teams that would play against each other, you know, and it, it wasn't the prettiest lacrosse, but they would have so much fun. And, you know, that's how it kind of started. So my team down in Split, like Zegrab is the capital. They have all the, the great players. That's where everyone practices. But I have a bunch of college kids that never played lacrosse. So um, teaching them the basics and everything, um, we actually tied the best team that, you know, tie, they don't play tiebreakers, tie which kind of kills me. But we actually tied the, the national team with a bunch of defunct medical students, which was amazing. <laughs> and you did the same thing with the blue collar school in California that was playing against the rich kids. So how do you do that? What do you what do you give your players that make them reach for that extra amount? What What's the yeah, secret it's, it's, to your coaching? I, I think it's it's not really me. It's, you have to find what each athlete has inside of them and try to bring it out. All, all kids aren't created equally, don't act the same or whatever. But um, what I find is that I would rather have a, play a kid with heart than an arrogant kid that's only going to run a couple of times. Even though how good he is or whatever, I mean, it's you're only as good as your weakest link and you're only strong as your strongest link. So there's a fine balance in there, but you have to find a way to, to bring that inner zone out to the kids and give them the confidence. You know, I think it's a lot of giving them confidence. You know, I'm not a guy that would sit there and as a coaching style, I'm not going to rip you apart. I'm going to, when you come off the field, I'm going to ask you, what did you do wrong? You know? And I think that goes a long way in athletes respecting their coaches because I'm not going to make a kid. Oh, you missed a shot. Get down and do 20 push-ups. You know, 
I just I see I seen that in like California back in the day, and that's not a coaching style I, I think is good. It might work for some people, but it's just find, giving the kids confidence. I think is you know the best way. Okay, now we can go to Greece. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened there? Who did you coach there? So I went to an international school. Um, There's actually a couple from um, Maryland, and. Uh, I, I think my name got out there somehow, or I, I actually don't call me on how it happened, how we got into contact with each other. But um, he was like, yeah, you know, my wife and I have been here for a year. We got a little kid. He plays lacrosse back in, um, uh, back in the United States, but they don't have lacrosse here or whatever. And um, so they started like a, and um, kind of a, a makeshift um, club team, but that was in like, I can't pronounce the word. It's like Thakinesis. Uh, but it's like four hours away from uh, Athens. So I went to, uh, he was like, listen, why don't you come to the school for like two weeks and every gym class will be, will be coaching lacrosse to any kids from kindergartner up to 12th grade. So it was a K, K through 12 school. So, you know, I actually, we, we coached four times a day during uh, gym periods and the kids loved it. It was a brand new game. I brought over all these mini sticks, you know, and um, it was just amazing. And even the gym teachers were playing and even like the people that would, you know, sit outside and watch the children. What were they called? Like hall monitors or whatever. Let me try. Let me try. It was amazing, you know. Um, So, yeah, so I was over there for I was over there for a little bit longer, but I did coach there for two weeks um, at a K through 12 school. In Athens. Wow. So what brought you back to Gilderland after California, world travels? What? Why did you settle here? Um, well, that's, I lived in Cal before. I mean, I settled. I was here on and off, always living in Albany. You know, my mom, you know, my brother hit eighth grade and they moved up here. Um, you know, the Albany became now my home base. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think about eight years ago, I rented uh um, I rented part of a, a house in Gilderland with other roommates and everything. And so I was there for eight years and that's when it kind of started, um, you know, with the selling the antiques and the farmers, you know, it was mainly milk farmers that were um, committing suicide more. It was the smaller farmers on the East Coast rather than like these big corporate um, farms that they have in, in the center. So um I know a couple of people from Gilderland and they're amazing people. And it was just right there. I was near the corner, 155 in Western. And it was a very convenient place to live. And I met so many amazing people. So I stayed there for about eight years and then coronavirus hit and a couple other things happened. And um, I ended up uh, being like, all right, I'm going to go travel down the Mediterranean. And uh, that's when I started, you know, with lacrosse in Sylvania and, um, all those other things. So um, that's what I did, um, you know, was it three years ago? Um, but I actually got on the last flight before they shut down the uh, um, the borders for Corona. Wow. <laughs> Just under the wire. So yeah. before we leave, I do want to hear about antiques. You've mentioned a couple of times that you, you know, would buy these and you didn't part with them so you you know one of the things that the farmer's market was selling them but like what kind of antiques do you collect and why so um i started collecting old radios 
um, from like the, the 20s and 40s, and mm -hmm. I would get a Bluetooth um, connection, like uh -huh. a, a little uh, um, uh, a CPU type thing or whatever. So I would plug that into the radio. So now you can use the old radio with your phone and play music through the old radio. So that was something I was like upcycling. So taking old radios that never worked, put a speaker in there, put a Bluetooth connection in there. Now you have your own wireless um, device, which, you know, back in the day, they made them all out of wood. So it's like an Atwater Kent cabinet, you know, with all the nice detailing, but then it's got this modern interior. Exactly. Yeah, but that you can't see. But even like even just the tabletop ones, you know, that maybe were only about a foot and a half big and, and high. They had those, you know, Jelcos, you know, that made them out of this plastic, you know. So those are really cool looking. Um, and it was just I think it was more buying things that reminded me of my childhood. Like my grandma had this like a musical tension rod, you know, lamp with three things coming out. You know, so that was like something I would buy. But then I saw, you know, an opportunity. How can I upcycle something? How can I get an antique and make it something that is different and that we use today? So I did that for a while, but then I just started buying, you know, um, portraits and old frames and getting old newspapers and framing old newspapers about important stories and um, a lot of wrought iron, you know, so, uh, and if it was, the more obscure it was, the more I had to have it too, which is not healthy. If you're <laughs> gonna be and so now have you been able to part with these? Is that you've sold them in the farmer's market or are you still collecting them? No, no, I, I, it's not collecting right now. Um, but I do have some stuff in storage and, um, you know, I have the, the special, the special ones that the special antiques that I really connect to, they, they come with me like when I, if I move. So right now I'm living in, in Albany right along Western Avenue. There's a big house. So um, I got some room to maybe buy some more. OK, well, our time has flown by. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? No, I just want to thank the Gilliland community for supporting the uh, farmer's market for six years. And uh, we made a lot of friends and hopefully this new type of market will bring people that would normally not come to the market to the market because uh, I mean, we have everything there, hot food, we have produce, artists, we have, you know, your next door neighbor, you know, that might be trying to bake something and maybe she wants to become a baker, you know? So I just want to definitely thank the Gillen community, the ultimate enterprise that's, you know, when I lived in Albany, that was the only paper I really trusted and read. So I want to thank you guys for that. 